they know everything. They don't. And we're back. <laughs> that's, that's as close to a British accent as I think I'm capable of doing. Welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. I am your co-host, Mike, one of the royal heir of Yorkshire pudding. Uh, co-host also, Mike, of the Queen's... We're doing Spencer, is what I'm getting at today. Uh, we're doing the Kristen Stewart vehicle, the Pablo Lorraine movie, Spencer, in an Oscar profile episode for you today. And this is a biggie, Mike, that we've uh, hyped up and previewed for quite a bit. Hello! <laughs> no, I, the Mrs. Yeah, the Mrs. Doubtfire voice is the best I can do. So, right, we, we got that out of the way. We are not Kristen Stewart. We cannot master that dialect as she did. Uh, we are nowhere close, so we will not try. But I do I do appreciate you, you going along with this deep dive. You know, after opening night, so it wasn't easy, I would say. I think... Uh, I think Spencer is a movie that I'd like to study more. So this, yeah. I, I just want to color this for the people the right way. Like this is a first reactions extravaganza more than it is a quote unquote film study. But I do feel good that we have an Oscars profile for people because we do kind of handicap everything. Last episode will help kind of, you know, set the stage for this one where we'll dive deeper. So I, I just want to get through some of the preface stuff real quick. If you've not joined us before for an Oscars profile episode, uh, it's two reviews for the price of one. The first half will be a non-spoiler variety. We'll give you a spoiler warning in the middle of it, and then it'll be all spoilers for the second half. So if you've not seen Spencer yet, don't worry. You're in a safe space here. This is all non-spoiler until you get to the spoiler warning. Uh, some quick how it's being received numbers spencer's at 84 percent on rotten tomatoes right now on 141 critic reviews it's carrying an 82 meta score meta rating very very high the audience scores are a little more divisive 52 percent audience score on rotten tomato a 7 out of 10 on a, more than 1600 votes on imdb all right that's all the uh the intro stuff out of the way i wanted mm -hmm. to highlight and paint michael uh you as so many people are in this country and i am certainly not uh you are a a hardcore fan of the royal family in that you have seen pretty much everything there is to see about the history of this family and that you're bringing that with you into this review so you're kind of getting two different prisms through which this movie is being seen in this episode uh i know nothing about the royal family. I came in cold and just watched this movie for what it is. But Michael, we want to run down some of the stuff that you brought with you into this movie before seeing this kind of rabbit hole deep dive you went through in preparation for Spencer? Well, it's the perfect time to be a latent Diana obsessive. And that's what I've become this past year since the pandemic. Like I researched Bigfoot, if he's real or not. <laughs> And I've researched <laughs> that classic pairing of Bigfoot and Diana. Yeah, right. Bigfoot, Diana, one week, Bigfoot, the next week, Diana. No, but I have watched the crown, binged it from seasons one through four this past year during the pandemic. I have watched uh, also on Netflix, Diana, the musical, which was stupendous. I cannot believe that was good. I know it's, you know, West End and, and that's the British Broadway and my God, it's got, you know, it's this big campy musical that I, I almost felt like they, you know, cheapened her life just with the, you know, the, the project in in itself, right? Just the, the whole conception of the project just feel, felt cheapening. And then you watch it and it's this wonderful musical with beautiful music and it, and it's so touching about 
you know, the, the, the her story. So I, I just thought the musical was excellent on Netflix. And then there's also a docuseries called The Royal House of Windsor, which has six addictive, bingeable episodes, Michael, that I've already watched twice. <laughs> Jeez. So that's just Netflix. Uh, there's the... <laughs> There's the documentary, Diana, in her own words, based on the book that most people cite most often about Diana. It's the closest thing we have to an autobiography of her. But this documentary came out in 2017. You can't find it anywhere right now. I would have loved to rewatch that for this episode. It's not available. But they do have some things available on HBO Max. You got the Helen Mirren Oscar winning The Queen, which we've talked about several times on the mm-hmm. show. The King's Speech, of course, about... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know Diana Diana's great grandfather by marriage Mark anyway. Zuckerberg oh, <laughs> Mark no, Zuckerberg is tangentially related to this whole thing <laughs> yes in the family tree Mark's he's somewhere in there but Diana's uh terrific 1 hour documentary from the perspective of her sons Diana our mother that's on HBO Max which kind of made me cry the other night uh, that was the most recent thing i watched so that's six things that i would say Definitely check out. Like if you're obsessed or if you're a latent fan of this story or just you're you're a history buff or whatever. Like I've come to that over the past year, Michael. But there are obviously there are people who love Diana, who followed every beat of her life since she came on the scene in the 80s through the 90s and were brokenhearted. Like I listened to one podcast this morning where like, you know, this movie is basically oh, remember why your mom cried 20 years ago. (laughs) That's this movie, darn it. And I'm glad I was able to kind of share this movie with also mom in this instance. We got uh, got out to the movies last night together. Yeah, and I took uh, mom one, as a matter of fact. She she is a big Diana fan. I'm not. But the reason I wanted to stress that at the start here is because I, I think one of the running themes about this review is going to be that you may have had a more enriching watch because you're able to fill in some of the blanks and you're able to call out what uh, is clearly ridiculous or what is clearly, uh, you know, a vision or a memory or something that's being done for a dramatic effect uh, versus what may be more biographical and more true to life. Uh, I am not, and I have, I carry those frustrations with me through this, and that's not to say that this is a bad movie by any stretch, but uh, if I ask you questions uh, along the way, uh, at least you'll know, dear listener, that I'm asking somebody who at least has somewhat of an idea of what they're talking about, as opposed to me, who if I were to be asked any questions, I would just be making things up whole cloth out of thin air. So that's uh, good that we have that. This will be a dig at you, don't question otherwise. <laughs> but they, you know like the people who animated Family Guy also did a Royals cartoon comedy show on HBO Max? Did you know I that? I did not know that, no. And there's like a baby <laughs> William or something who's like a Stewie character. So maybe that is what you would... I would watch that. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I will say, like, we were talking before (laughs) before we hit record, and the biggest thing I took away from Mike filling me in already on some of the the stuff I was missing is that I want to watch The Crown. I keep saying you should do a sales job for one of these major studios because you always end up doing a great job of upselling something and, like, making me more interested in something I thought I would have no interest in. But I want to watch The Crown now, and I may start that tonight, as a matter of fact. Well, that gives me... Some encouragement because I don't know like how often I should go into the movie critic kind of because that that is a part of the job or part of the fun of being a movie critic or a TV critic is that you you know you try and sell the stuff that you enjoy and try to push people towards it so I guess that is uh, the nicest thing you've ever said to me ever so that's great. (laughs) 
let's let's talk about more nice things to start. You and mom shared a lovely meal after this movie, but how was your what were your expectations going in? Is mom as is also mom as a, a royal family obsessive as you are? Uh, totally. What did you think about your watching experience? Yo, she she lived through it like your mom did, and yeah. she loved Diana. She she told me how many times where she just uh, you know she was devastated that mm. day. She stayed up all night when it was in doubt whether or not uh, she survived the car crash. And, oh God. you know, she was just rocked for days, for weeks. And uh, she she had followed and loved the People's Princess like so many uh, over there. And that's why this movie, I kind of wanted her to brace for it because mm. I knew Pablo Lorraine's work, right? I mean, Emma, <laughs> or Emma and Jackie, heavy stuff, uh, genre benders. I, we heard about this via the film festivals we couldn't go see it at the film festivals just didn't fit up with our schedules but we knew that it had some psychological horror elements so i don't know about you did you talk to your mom about it at all but i kind of braced her for it. i was like mom this is going to be dark and ominous and tension filled and anxiety inducing mm. kind of thing no i didn't really i mean i know the bare bones of the diana story i mean i can remember her funeral procession this is how out of touch I am and have always been. I remember her funeral <laughs> procession when they were carrying uh, the actual casket. Yeah. There was a handwritten note from, I think it was William on it, that said mummy on it, M-U-M-M-Y. Uh, uh. And me watching that, I was like, oh, she's a mummy? They wrapped her up in cloth? <laughs> Correct, but no. <laughs> I was nine or ten at the time, so I really didn't know any better. But well, I your sense my... of humor hasn't changed. So that's <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I, was, I was serious. I was like, oh, that must be a thing they do over in Britain. They, but I didn't know, so I'm an idiot. <laughs> Forever and always, but that's how little I know about uh, just the world in general. I guess not necessarily <laughs> specific to this story, but that falls in line. But no, I didn't. I didn't know uh, anything about the story. I didn't really uh, ask any questions of my mother about it. I did have the most bizarre movie watching experience I've ever had in my entire life. I don't know if you saw oh on our God. Twitter, Mike, or on so our social medias, but the Southington did, AMC yeah. Yeah. is. Uh, it's a house of horrors. It's a Willy Wonka factory. It's oh, man. ridiculous. <laughs> well, I got I got a I got a tinge to that story myself because I went to the Danbury AMC and they didn't have nacho cheese. So everything <laughs> you're gonna say, I'm gonna make the false equivalency that I only got salsa and I got no nacho cheese with my nachos. They ran out. The company that provides them ran out. <laughs> That's I what would the have loved person told me. for my biggest problem to be a lack of nacho cheese. You would have laughed in my face, like scoffed, like heartily. Like to, to hear me question this poor high school kid working <laughs> at the thing, like, and then... And I need, I was mean? so mad, I didn't even get another salsa. So I, I just remember being furious. Like, after the trailers were done, I had already finished the salsa, and I had half the chips remaining <laughs> left over. Because, of course, you don't have enough. Now, have what enough the dipping. hell am I supposed to do with these? What? Uh, yeah. What? Do I, my, uh, luckily, my mom want, just wanted to eat plain chips, because otherwise, <laughs> I would have I thrown them in the air, and they could have cleaned them up for the... No, I, I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> I mean, basically, I was, I was furious right before the movie started, after we had traffic to get there we barely made it for a 6 p.m showing i don't know about you i know you did the five yeah, up we where we you guys went because you, you had to get done earlier so yeah this is this is d dark times for movie watching i would say and, and, and at the bigger chains right now i'm starting to get worried because they're running out of stuff and they're not taking care of things not taking care my I mean, amc needs to either shut this theater down i was in or like sink hundreds of thousands of dollars i want to make a big thing about it because i don't want to take up too much time but I, I spent a lot of time tweeting about it last night but go on either at mm and oscar on twitter or at mike mike and oscar on instagram i, I 
the chairs were torn up and beat to hell, but they were not old chairs because they still were the electrical reclining part, but there was no division between the rows and there was nothing on the screen five minutes before showtime. And when the movie did start playing, they didn't turn off the lights. And just to get a soda, you had to go from the snack bar down two long hallways to get to the yeah, actual soda yeah. machine. It, it, I felt like I was in the Overlook Hotel. It was the most crazy... I, like I thought I was I've never been more sure I was getting murdered at a place in my entire life than I was last night. Oh God. So well, can both, I say both, this though as yeah. a silver lining? Uh, here's what I hope. I hope that the increased traffic has wet and the decreased staff has weathered the theaters over the last few months, I would say. That's what my hope is, right? Because you know, uh, there's still like great theaters at a at the AFC that yes. I go to, right? There's the Dolby Theater that is just majestic. And last week I was raving and singing the praises of the North. Haven uh, Cinemark, by the way, that right. Andrew and I went to, right? So, like, there's still great theaters around here. Some are keeping things up, but you're right. I mean, some of them are just disheveled is that yeah, the word disheveled i think disheveled. The, the pandemic has taken its toll on theaters the pandemic is not to be blamed for the, like this theater needs to be shut down not because it's not doing well but because i'm pretty sure it's haunted or it's like a health <laughs> violation it's like it needs it needs to be done away with is is what i'll say but again go it's check like out the uh, scarecrow in the movie we're about to talk about okay uh, yes exactly <laughs> go check out our social medias if you want to see more i put a couple videos and pictures up there uh but all right let's talk about uh the oscars lens and Despite us having those kind of poor setups to our viewing experiences, I think we both agree that we had uh, fulfilling watches in at least one way or another. And let's start talking about uh, what those watches mean in terms of Oscars odds. This right now sits, uh, Spencer right now sits at a 33 to 1 odds for best picture, Michael. Right. Neon won with Parasite. Uh, four Oscars in 2019. Otherwise, I thought they had a better track record, Mike, but Honeyland had two noms that year. I, Tanya, three noms in 17. That's their track record. So they're kind of fairly new at this, even though they've hit a few out of the park. Yeah. This movie seems to be much lower on lists at Best Picture with those 33 to 1 and Best Director, which the odds are 20 to 1 right now for Pablo Lorraine. Then screenplay or some other categories, but editing is 17th on Gold Derby. Original screenplays around, you know, ninth on Feinberg, fourth on Next Best Picture, 10th from Clayton Davis, 11th on Gold Derby. So in terms of the four composition categories that we always talk about, you know, composition categories, where do you give the credit to mm-hmm. the editing, the screenplay, the direction, or just Best Picture? It seems to be on the outside looking in right now in terms of that Oscar lens. But I will say this. I think the tone and mood of the movie takes away. And then then what the baggage you bring in, whether you're a fan or not, whether you're Mm -hmm. obsessed or not, I think your opinions going in color your movie watching experience. So I think this film as a story as itself is very successful, but I cannot help but recoil from some of the you know editorialization of this yeah Uh, editorialization both figuratively and literally i think because i think the editing and the screenplay uh cause issues uh within the film itself as well and again it's not to say it was a bad watch i actually think quite the opposite but i think with the screenplay especially it tries to take these chances sometimes that the risk just doesn't meet the reward it would have taken if the chances did work out and what's more frustrating is that had it just played it straight, I think you would have a more intriguing movie anyway. I mean, they're like unnecessary chances that kind of muddle the viewing experience for me and they make me question what exactly is going on versus what's being 
what the director thinks is going on or what he thinks his vision is. I, you know, I know all art is subjective and I'm, I'm just telling you what I saw, but I, I, I just think, man, I, I wish there were some chances that were reeled in a little bit here. Yeah, as a movie, I would say this, though. Like, I just saw psychological horror done poorly, in my opinion, unfortunately, in a much better theater, but with Last Night in Soho, right? Mm -hmm. With another filmmaker that I love. And I love Pablo Lorraine. I love Edgar Wright. But I think they pulled off the psychological horror here. I think this works. I think if Ari Aster wanted to direct it and take it up to 11, that would have been a choice. But I thought the psychological horror worked. It's symmetrical in the story. They don't they almost overdo it a few times and like you said you know maybe i have you know 10 episodes of the crown to give me reasons for why things are happening whereas you're kind of like maybe that's a little melodramatic but right so for me this there's also an element of psychological warfare though which i think is more it's hit it's hits me harder and it's what i recoil from because we all have our opinions on who is at fault in this relationship, in this saga, in this soap opera that is real life between Charles and Diana or was real life between Charles and Diana and has played out again and again with this Windsor family. It just played out again with Harry and Meghan and the British people are very upset about Meghan Markle and that whole situation. So you have baggage that you bring in to this quote-unquote fable from a true tragedy. So the artistic license that they are so obviously taking that is so much different than the crowns and peter morgan's you know artistic license that he took from the crown this is something that you have to reckon with as a film goer and especially if you're someone who loved diana and is just holding up the phone finger in the air for diana that is where i i have some trouble like i wonder if this movie was directed by other people i mean that's the thing like pablo lorraine and stephen knight They've done what they've done. They're, they have their CV. What if Emerald Fennell directed this? Mm-hmm. What if yeah. Celine Shiama directed this? And, maybe, and what if a, Brit- a British woman directed this? Would there be m- more empathy and sympathy here? Is that necessary for the, for this story? I don't know. Well, I think it would have at least made things clearer. And I think, you know, you say you, you're kind of a victim or you're subject to what you bring in, your baggage Beholding, you bring in. Yeah, absolutely. But if... if you don't have baggage to be brought in like I didn't. Like, I think you're just chasing it sometimes. And for as many movies as we get on about there being too much of an exposition dump or whatever, like, I would have loved a little more exposition as to exactly where we were in Diana's life at this time. And I know right. that's obvious to people who, who are, you know, obsessive with her story. But I I had, you know, I thought this was going to be a, a story, a movie about her pining for divorce. Right. It is, except it's also not at all. You expected maybe Steve Jobs, where the big arguments yeah, were going to happen, right. not all this. And it was all in subtext, and it was brilliant. Yes, yes like agreed. A few of those scenes that I'm sure you got, like the pool table scene, they just released a clip today. That is brilliant. That sums yeah. up Charles and Diana's relationship so well. It's almost, I mean, it almost wins a nomination for me right there in the screenplay for Stephen Knight. So this script does have highs, and you always talk about points for ambition and high degree of difficulty and taking the risk. So that's where I commend Stephen Knight and Pablo Lorraine. The problem is some of the risks do not pay off and we'll get into it. I think in worse scenes, uh, do you want to, you want to tease the people about that with maybe the, uh, the, the narrative perspective and the narrative devices here? 
Oh, how this turns into a ghost story, you mean? Perhaps. Perhaps or perhaps <laughs> not. Yeah, I mean, it, it truly, you know, there's what's real and what's not real. I mean, mm-hmm. th- those questions are had. And the delineation, I, like, I understand it's supposed to be vague, but it's... It, it, what's the word I'm looking for here? It's like, it's it's purposely vague, except it also fails its purpose sometimes, and that leaves you more confused than you should be. Ambiguous? You know the movie's not going for the confusion that you feel sometimes. Oh, okay. So, uh, yeah, I, again, maybe the the baggage that everybody comes in with, it, it's going to give you kind of a choose-your-own-adventure thematic journey in this movie, I would say. Yeah, because, I, I mean, I think it characterizes Diana in a type of way right. that I, I don't think is meant to be, you're supposed to question her sanity in. Well, that's the thing. Like, my mom, who loved Diana for decades and who grew up in her formative years as she was a young mother, was watching diana be a young mother and there's all that commiseration uh, uh, throughout the the late 80s and early 90s for her for her to watch this portrayal and this kind of psychological horror with diana was a hard experience for her like my mom was on a great diet she was doing wonderful forever forever <laughs> and we not just because i watched too much food and they didn't give me nacho cheese but because of that as well but we had to go eat afterwards and she had to you know work through some of those anxieties after the movie because like that was a tough sit it's a tough watch and she has to reckon with all her feelings on diana did diana really do this was she yeah. in this severe level of right. crisis and I guess I really don't feel like Pablo Lorraine was going for you have the viewer question whether or not Diana was mentally deranged, quite frankly. I mean, like was actually going through the visions that she that was portrayed literally here. And I understand it's a fable and all that. But again, there's a distinct delineation at times between what is real and what is going on in her mind or her head or what is she's like talking to herself or seeing these visions, etc. But that delineation isn't there during certain parts, and it leaves the viewer wondering if we're dealing with somebody who is actually losing it, which, to me, I, again, not knowing anything about it, I, I don't think that's how she, Diana was meant to be portrayed right, in this right. story. Well, I, I, I'll say this, and then we'll move on, because we we have to get the spoilers uh, to finish the conversation. I, I do think that's better than a tease. So <laughs> that's that's more than a tease. Because so that is like the fundamental question, I would say, for our spoiler section. You know, where do we land? And what does this make a, us think about Diana now? And what's the truth of the whole situation? Mm. So if, like, that's what's so great about this movie. And I do think Pablo Lorraine and Stephen Knight did this purposefully. And they, they saw the crown. They saw season 10 of The Crown, I'm sure. I don't think it's an accident that season 10 of The Crown ends on this particular Christmas vacation, this particular Mm. Christmas weekend in Sandringham, right? That's where The Crown season 10, literally episode 10 ends, season 4, episode 10. And then we get that history in a movie. And Mm. now we're going to go forward in The Crown. I don't think the timing of that is lost on Neon, um, or I'm lost on Hollywood. I, Hollywood did that deliberately, in my opinion. So this is, and they both had different portrayals of these events. So we know it's artistic license. We do know that. I mean, there's some commonalities, but we know it's artistic license. So two different spins on it that I think uh, I think we have to reckon with. But one thing we can probably all agree on, I would say, is this performance. Yeah, Kristen Stewart. Like, I, I do want to say this quick, and forgive me, but I, I think it's important. 
everybody grows tired of praising the rest of her CV, right? Like, because Mm -hmm. for some reason, she's so famous and so popular and so successful with the Twilight films and, you know, her, her big, you know, all her kids' choice awards and teen choice awards and people's choice awards that... When, when a film critic rips off 10 movies from Happiest Season, Seaburg, Lizzie, Personal Shopper, you know, Certain Women, Still Alice, Clouds of Silmaria, Camp X-Ray, The Runaways, et cetera, et cetera, The Wild, Undertow, Panic Room as a Kid. When you rip off those movies and you're like, oh my God, she's been a great actress for two decades. Yeah. yeah. Like the fact that people underestimate her still and they still give her this like label of, Oh my God, Kristen Stewart break a breakout performance. Shut up! <laughs> You're wrong. She's had ten. She can't, you can't have ten breakout performances. She well, think, was ready for this. Yeah, I think part of the issue there with the general public is that she didn't have the you know the stamp like the Kristen the iconic Kristen Stewart performance outside of Twilight, at least for lay people in the general public. And now she does. I mean, I couldn't believe how right. difficult it was for me to see Kristen Stewart in this movie at all. I, I don't know that the performance is as good as Daniel Day-Lewis in Lincoln, but it's the one I kept being drawing a parallel to because she, this is an A-list actress who just completely, you lose her. She becomes this other person in this biopic, and I could not see anyone but Princess Diana, from the inflections to the mannerisms to the body language to the refusal to raise her voice. I mean, my God, every moment this was Diana on screen, and it was, she should moonwalk to the, I don't even have Best Actress as a category right now. Well, I'm thrilled you say all this, because I, I do agree with you. I mean, she, by far, uh, stands above the rest of the field right now, and, and we've both seen you know, most of the rest of the field from Olivia Coleman, Penelope Cruz to, to Jessica Chastain. And mm-hmm. I, you, you think she's head and shoulders above Ch- Chastain oh, right now. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as much as I love, uh, Cruz and Coleman, I, I will say Kristen Stewart's on the next level. And it's, it's that immerse immersion into the character that works for me. It's also not the mimicry right. that does it, which is why I think, I think there's a nice blend. It's almost like the Tom Hanks school, right? Well, it's Tom Hanks, but it's it's Tom Hanks' version of so and so biopic, right? Mm-hmm. You know, or so right. But it's still Tom Hanks. It's still Meryl Streep, and it, this is Kristen Stewart, but it's also Kristen Stewart doing Princess Diana. But it's not. She doesn't look like Princess Diana, so I was worried about right. The Same here, exactly. I was Same worried here. about the yeah. height, right? Like. Yeah, so I'm I'm worried about the accent from the first trailer. Remember. Mm-hmm. They don't. <laughs> I can't do it. How can spot she do on? It? Spot on. <laughs> they don't. No, but no. I, I mean that's that's the that's the fear I have in a lot of these. But like when when the person doesn't have any kind of major makeup on to hide themselves, and they're just the, when the actor is that famous and they're playing somebody else, you always see the actor, and that's what's so fascinating about Daniel Day Lewis and Lincoln. And now I would put Kristen Stewart right up there. Well, like Gary Oldman is easier to buy as Winston Churchill because he's wearing a fat suit and all that makeup. And the jowls, right. you know, like Kristen yeah. Stewart just has, is, I don't mean, is she even wearing a wig? Is that her real hair? I don't know, but it's done beautifully. And my God, because she is so committed to becoming this other person, this from right down to the mannerisms, to the way she holds her head, to the way she fights back and grits her teeth sometimes and delivers lines yeah. through, through, it's just, it's unbelievable. Believe the hype. 
the physicality of this performance was the most impressive thing for me. And you know from the trailer, I'm not spoiling anything, that there's a lot of running and dancing and collapsing Mm -hmm. and crying and yelling. It is Oscar-grabbing, I think, if you can... Like do the checklist of things that typically happen sure. in the best actress win. That's fine. I I I like that we have years where the big over the top performance, or at least you know those boxes get checked. I like those when, when somebody pulls off that performance. Hell, Leonardo DiCaprio did it in his own way once upon a time in Hollywood, and he didn't win, and we were upset about it. Mm-hmm. But. I love the tweet today from Zach Gilbert talking about her visceral acting, her, in, her, her instincts with just her fingers on that pool table. Because, you know, the clip was released this morning and her fingers on the eight ball, eight ball and grabbing the pool table. And, and listening to how Stewart was interviewed about this process where she struggled with the accent until production. Right. So she was like. She was really worried about pulling off the accent to the point where before she connected with Diana or mastered Diana's character verbally, she had to do it physically first. So mm. this it shows like all the gestures in this really work and there are layers and complexities to the physicality of this performance that, that shine through to me now. So I have a question. Yeah. Not if, but when <laughs> Olivia Coleman wins Best Actress this year over her. Does she take the stage dressed as Queen Elizabeth just to, like, rub salt in the wound a little more? Well, I was going to ask you, like, I mean, Queen Elizabeth has been the spoiler for for Mike Mike and Oscar favorite actresses, Glenn Close, obviously. Uh, and uh, we've, we've, you know, had fun with this with other rival Oscar podcasts or become they become faux rivals uh, with us, the Academy Queens. We like those guys, but they, yeah. they become, uh, you know, uh, torturing us on, on, on film mm-hmm. Twitter with that, with those gifts, those Olivia Coleman gifts, we were upset that Glenn Close lost. So now if Kristen Stewart were, I mean, I, I have the foam finger ready and it's in the air already for this performance like you do. I, I'm worried that, you know, someone like Olivia Coleman mm-hmm. could get her second one. And then, yeah, she burps and hiccups and, this- and farts and <laughs> drops Oscar and still wins. Woo, oh, I'm so, so wasted again. Um, <laughs> I love Olivia Coleman, too. But God damn it. <laughs> too. Uh, and she's great the, in Lost Daughter, by the way. Great. And the similarities I, between this. this movie and The Wife, I think, are striking as well. Because this is a better all-around movie than The Wife. But it's also... It's Oscar's chances are going to be led by how well the performance is received. I think. Right. I mean, right. she's. I think Kristen Stewart is so good she can like drag a hair and makeup nomination out of this too. You know, never mind that the costumes. We're going to talk about overall nominations in a minute, but like this is this rises and falls. I think by how overall by how much this performance is accepted as one of the best of the year. I agree. I, I also think the movie's better than some I of these others that. Uh, have just been performance uh, nominations, whether that's At Eternity's Gate and Willem Dafoe, or that's a contender from this year, like Jennifer Hudson's performance Mm. in Respect. That movie had trouble, and it just had trouble with the reception. And and that may doom her ability to get nominated at the end. Uh, Pieces of a Woman had similar issues, but I I would say the auxiliary issues for Pieces of a Woman hurt Vanessa Kirby's kind of campaign to win more than it was ever in doubt that she'd get nominated last year. So, yeah, the rest of this ensemble is terrific. I don't think they're getting enough credit. I will say Sally Hawkins as Maggie, some of her best work I've seen in a while. Yeah, she deserves more praise. 
I love I love that number one, they cast all the big name British actors as the help in this mm-hmm. movie. Like Timothy Spall is the butler and Sean Harris is the chef, a real life portrayal of Darren, the chef who who was a friend of Diana, which again endears you all the more to Diana because she was known to be friends with the staff. Right. She was known, especially during this time period, to have more conversations with the staff than she did with her own family at this point, mm-hmm. her married into family. So I love that we had those relationships and that you know they jack farthing is excellent as charles here i I, i'm I'm a big fan obviously josh o'connor is his own level of superior you know wonderful very punchable faces very very punchable hairdo i would say and they had more (laughs) hair than they had a right to have at this time in charles's life but this is an ensemble that should be recognized i just like i'm worried that they're not higher on people's lists right now i would say that the Maybe the fact of that is that they're playing other characters that are a bit ambiguous and you're worried that are they artistic license and they didn't really exist because the Queen played by Stella Gonet and, and Richard Samuel, Prince Philip, Jack Nielsen, Freddie Spry, the kids do a two great kid actors yeah. in this, but Elizabeth great. Barrington, really strong cast. And I thought the specter of the Queen and all her scowls was, I, I loved that, that they went for this story told in this way where we didn't necessarily get to know the Queen because we have that. We have mm-hmm. 39 episodes, <laughs> 40 episodes, excuse me, of the of the Crown. And we have all these other movies where we know Queen Elizabeth as a fictional character. Here she is just this 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 pre, this um, dominating presence in every room. Yeah, and this uh, is even the, though she doesn't this talk. Isn't the royal family's movie, right? I mean, this is Diana's movie. This is about her and and her decision and what she's what she's dealing with and, and wrestling with the entire time and the onslaught of anxiety that comes with it. So I don't think it was necessary to have necess- much from the Queen per se. I think we t- we talked about she has one line of dialogue in this movie. Now, as for production values, as you said, I would think that a movie like this has a couple surefire nominations. But yeah, I I agree, but everyone seems to think original score is one of them. And original score to me was weird. It, it was just weird. Well, it it's kind of scary at times, right? Johnny Greenwood. But, but, sure, but if that's all it was, I'd be all for it. And we're, we're talking about Johnny Greenwood of Radioheads, who's done a lot of work with PTA in the past. But look, just because you have the main character walking outside in a foggy night doesn't mean it's a neo-noir detective movie. You don't have to have the score that mimics a noir detective scene going on. Like, she could just be sad. You could rely on the string music that you've done the entire time. I feel like this movie, and to Johnny Greenwood's credit, I guess, he, he hops around genres with the score. But to me, that just added to confusion of what I was watching because I felt like what they were telling me was the character was feeling didn't jive with what the character had been set up to be feeling at that point. It's quite the juxtaposition, the music at the end of the movie and at the beginning of the movie. And I'll leave that to spoilers. I would say, I agree with you that the, the music is jarring. I've been listening to at least the two songs that have been released up till now and the score all morning. And they're pretty spectacular, though. So Johnny Greenwood also did the score for The Power of the Dog, which floored me earlier mm-hmm. this month. Uh, and I, I think he may get a double domination this year. It may cannibalize. I don't know. But, you, yeah, I, right now the pundits, this score is first on Clayton David's award circuit. It's second on, at Next Best Picture. 
you know, the tail of the tape right now is that this is a likely nominee. I guess we'll we'll have to wait and see. The other most likely nominee, I would say, is Costumes Michael. Jacqueline Duran, two-time Oscar winner from Little Women. Anna Karenina, also, uh, excuse me, but how many additional noms? One, two, three, four, five additional noms uh, over the last, since 2005. Third on Gold Derby's combined numbers right now. First on Next Best Picture. Sixth in Clayton Davis for Costumes. Just nominate it. I mean, they got some iconic <laughs> looks that are done already, and, and they look like they were lifted from the historical photos that all of us remember seeing. So, I mean, this is superb job with costume. Now, everything else, like score, I, I do think it's a bit divisive. And makeup and hairstyling for you and for a particular mom, number one. <laughs> divisive, Mike? Yeah, I asked, I asked my mom. I was like, so what'd you think coming out of the theater? And she goes, that actress was great, even though they got her hair completely wrong. I was like, all right, Her hair well, was wrong. That's, She's not- that's good enough for me. That whole department can go to hell then. <laughs> She's not inaccurate there. Uh, so, yeah, I'm wondering uh, if, if you felt channeled the same jealousy that i did for charles having too much hair in this maybe that's what it was we're both jealous i didn't i i, I had no feeling towards charles's quaff no <laughs> well how about how about like naomi watts had the perfect diana quaff right at this time mm-hmm. where it went more up in the air like marge simpson which i think yep. is what your mom's referring to right she had the perfect hair in 2013's diana and yet she won a razzie so here I'm hoping that it just this was closer to Kristen Stewart, right? They're they're not they weren't going to alter the Kristen Stewart hair to the point where it became like Diana. This is why I say like the mimicry wasn't the performance. There wasn't the essence of the performance for me. I also don't think it's as off as my mother seems to think it was. (laughs) I I looked up pictures of and there's there's plenty of pictures if you just Google Princess Diana where she does have that kind of brushed over to one side in the front, but it had a comb going straight back through the back of her hair. And you could see plenty of pictures on Google images of her. I don't think the hair is as poorly uh, done as as maybe my poor mother remembers. Well, your your poor mother remembers some iconic photographs from that era, I'm sure. So I will say this. The cinematography is probably not that polarizing. I just don't understand, Michael, why the cinematography is not higher on everybody's list. It's like outside, just outside of people's fives. It's like sixth, eighth, and seventh from the usual suspects there uh, that we follow and that we, we, we follow religiously in terms of their predictions. Claire Mathan, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Petite Mimon, Little Mm -hmm. Mom. Atlantics, tremendous cinematographer DP. The foggy, misty, wispy, cloudy cataracts, milky filter that they use. Overshot that drone shot of going into the whole uh, palace at the beginning of that house. Oh my goodness! Good God, man! I want to see this movie again, and I don't even care if I listen to it. I I this is going to be a movie I leave on in the background. I just want to look at it. Yeah. I thought that I thought the cinematography was next level gorgeous. It's not just the setting in Germany where they shot Sandringham. They didn't go to the actual place. They're in uh, I'll, I'll talk about it in spoilers. They're at some renowned hotel in Germany uh, where they they filmed on location there. So her ability to to leave us with shots not just of the grounds but shots of Diane, they're going to haunt us. That's why the trailer was so good, Mike. They're gonna haunt me for the rest of my days. Like I, I wanna, I want a best cinematography winner. And I, I, at the end of the day, I'm cool with the guy Mesher Schmidt who won for Mank, because mm-hmm. Mank had some unforgettable looks that are just and, and and stills and 
that are just going to stick with you. Let's have more of that. More of that should win awards. Like I, they, they're going to linger in my brain. They're going to be earworms and brainworms. I will never forget her running down that hallway in that dress. I mean, the the poster was mm-hmm. perfect. We praised the poster when that first poster came out of her leaning over the with the dress. Yeah, this I'll may never be as close forget. As- this may be as close as any of us get for like a horror movie getting an Oscar win because this is right. shot in a, a lot of horror ways and her it's on those as stairs, like a thriller or horror, yeah. Her on those stairs in the quintessential horror movie scene of this mm-hmm. movie, I'll never forget that, and yeah. that's due to Claire Mathan. So nominate Claire Mathan, please, people. Production yeah. design. How do you? How do you even know? Like, if you're a set decorator, <laughs> if you're a production designer, if you're an art designer. How do you know what's this hotel and what's not this hotel and what was des- what was dressed and what was not? The difference between how this mansion is shot and the mansion in Rebecca, the Rebecca remake we did was shot. <laughs> that made you feel like you were watching two separate rooms when the, what was supposed to be the sprawling mansion. This feels like the the castle from The Favorite. It really right. does. I mean, it, it, or again, the Overlook Hotel is just never ending <laughs> and it's just wide and, and disorienting and kind of dreary and fearful at all, all at once. Yeah, I'm with you. Well, I guess if you just filmed at a museum, well, like they did in The Favorite, how, 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 why should they win awards for that? Right. And that's, <laughs> that's, the, that's the other side of the argument here with cinematography, with production design, and with all that. It's, it's like these places are so beautiful. And they're probably so dreary on their own, which adds to the mood because it doesn't look like, I mean, I don't think there was a lot of VFX with the weather there. It looked like it was actually like raining and foggy a lot of the time. Like, I, but we don't know that. Right. But here's the thing. Like, you're right. I mean, that, that could be Dave and Buster's like in real life, like that room. <laughs> like it could be some guy's man cave and he's got, you know, just arcade shit in there and they turned it like we don't know and i don't think the academy has the foggiest idea no what i'm trying to get across here about production design although it would be hilarious if it came out that this was shot at a dave and busters in like seattle washington <laughs> if you did if you just told people hey the schloss hotel in kronberg germany is the oktoberfest capital of the world and it's just nothing but checkered sausage related we shot this whole thing at the pittsburgh city hall believe it or not (laughs) and we turned it in to sendringham right all right so we we talk we we, the best sound is i I don't know i don't remember any sound in this movie i got it that's that's for rewatches but 24th on gold derby right now who knows michael a lot a lot of things need a rewatch to suss them out but in terms of an oscar lens where where do you fall uh, fall in terms of the wrap up here? How many noms? What's your over under? Where are you at? So again, I think it has a lot of similarities to the life. It's a better all around movie though, and it's got a lot of Academy friendlier categories that are Academy appealing categories than the wife does. But I think it's going to go with how strong people feel about Kristen Stewart. If Kristen Stewart's going to remain a top flight performance, then I could see her dragging this to a Best Picture nom overall. I think actress is a lock. I think costumes is a lock. I think hair and makeup should be a lock, and everyone else is telling me score is a lock, so I'll relent and say it is. Uh, That could be... That's four categories alone already. That could be more than enough for it to be considered... I mean, you know, look at Ford v. Ferrari, which was a technical marvel, and it made its way into the best picture field. So maybe this movie does a similar path as well. And it's found to be something that winds up in that field of tenths where instead of having a static 10 best pictures, I'll put the over under at 4.5. I think that's a good place for it. 
I would not be shocked at all to see this get a, a director sneak in, a picture sneak in. I could see this being as many as like six, seven nominees. If Kristen Stewart's going to be the runaway favorite, she's the heavy, heavy betting favorite right now. But if those long, if those odds keep getting even shorter and shorter somehow, and they just become, she becomes more of a lock, I could see this being more Academy friendly and getting up to that like six, seven number of nominees. But I'll put the over-under at 4.5. What do you think? I wonder about the tone, the mood, the the selection of genres, the uh, how it's a bit controversial, I would say, and certainly it makes people feel sad if all those simple reasons of, of you know just negativity does that pull people away from all of the superlatives and we've seen this happen before where maybe sometimes you know in a year like last year the father is actually propped up right and if the father was well a that's what you're watch, saying is exactly why the movie ends the way it does i think yeah but here's the thing: like we've seen these horror movies get slighted year after year, and they probably have just as much craft as anything, especially for the for the dollar for for you know p- p- you know pound for pound or by the by the dollar dollar for dollar that is. So I wonder about people feeling bad watching this movie, and then how does that affect their voting in, in, in the branches? I don't know. Because I think I would pound the table for cinematography. I would pound the table for makeup and hair. And then, therefore, once you get to four or five, you have to say screenplay. It's a bit divisive, but I think the chances they take, some of it works. And once you say screenplay, editing. I mean, this is wonderfully edited, Mm -hmm. I thought, for the most part. And they're pulling off all these tonal issues in such a cohesive way. And I'm buying what I'm watching. And it's also not... I mean, even though it's unpleasant, it's it fits. It just fits. Like the I thought Pablo Lorraine, he's always done that. Like the composition is strong, and that's why he's being given properties like this one, and he's been given the responsibility of them. So once you get to five or six, and screenplays involved, how do you not say editing and picture? Mm-hmm. And I, I'm a little surprised he's not higher up in the director. And that's so, enough. And that's enough branches too, where it's just going to be defaulting. There's going to be just enough people voting for it for picture anyway. If it's in that many branches, top five. Exactly. So I, I, I'll be honest with you. I would pound the table for the over right now. In my opinion, mm-hmm. what's going to happen? That's what's intriguing about the rest of the season. Like Jackie was only nominated for three Oscars after being quite the conversation piece that entire year. Early audience scores are indeed a little questionable for me mm-hmm. right now with Spencer. The fatigue after the crown and awarding the crown at mm-hmm. the Emmys, etc. I wonder if there's also a backlash to Kristen Stewart as the front runner, not because of anything Kristen Stewart's done wrong, just because of every front runner has some kind they have to weather some kind of backlash or questioning. It's just the news cycle thing. And, and she yeah, angered she, Donald Trump, don't forget. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, look, we know there's because there's heavily conservative members in the academy. True. No, you know? true. We, we, yep. That we can't overestimate that. But I mean, she had the most publicity and the most hype because of her popularity on the Venice red carpet. Is there jealousy from that? I mean, those short Italian shorts. They were the talk of the town, mm-hmm. literally. And then she mm-hmm. went to Telluride, and she smoothed. To perfection. I, everybody was glowing. I remember following Telluride that weekend and all her high socks, jeans. Number number one, the fashion she's put on outside of the movies, it mirrors Diana's 
inside of this in every yeah. movie and in real life. I mean, she is just a fashion icon, Kristen Stewart. Yep. So is there some jealousy of that? But look, I mean, it's an annual tradition for a front runner in an Oscar race to, to have to weather some backlash. And does that happen here? Because she is clearly the front runner. And she's yeah. built for it, too. I mean, she's built for I don't think she gives a shit anymore. You know, like if there's going to be some kind of controversy completely made up by the media or some by some haters that want to take her down, I don't think she's going to respond to it <laughs> and it'll go away. And then we'll still be left with Kristen Stewart in this amazing performance. Yeah. I mean, she somehow had a quiet uh, career of 20 plus films. She awesome just got engaged and there was barely anything about it on, online right. I saw. But, pe- you know, but like, people always go back to think, you Twilight Girl. Yeah, great. She's used to it. So watch Twilight Girl win an Oscar, right? She's used to it, and she's been there, done that, and uh, and she's been underestimated so many times. She dropped a hard f bomb on the SNL stage, and people were like, "Oh my god, she's adorable!" (laughs) You know, like (laughs) I I don't. I I think she'll be fine. I I agree. So, all right, we got we got some things to spoil though. Spoilers ahead. This is a spoiler warning. Spoilers. 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 This is the spoiler section for the Oscar profile of the movie Spencer, brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar. This is where you want to be for all spoilers for this movie from here on out. If you've not seen the movie yet, this is a good place for you to hit pause on us. Go check it out for yourself at your local theater. Don't go to the Southington AMC in Connecticut, uh, oh. but go somewhere else. You'll be here <laughs> well, waiting for Go there you. enough, or go there over go there, so they can give them enough money so that they hire more people. And go there with a construction crew better. and tear it down, is what I would Please. say. But yeah, No, uh, but build it back up. <laughs> Uh, but uh, this is where you want to be. All twists and turns, all plot, all spoilers for Spencer. The Oscars profile episode brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar. All right, Mike, where do you want to start? And are we starting with how Princess Diana apparently was a crazy person? Yeah, I think we got to start there, right? Because yeah. I think my also mom's biggest worry about this, after going in, she's like, the crown, all the documentaries... Prince Charles's approval rating went down. Just, I mean, it was tangible evidence. After the crown, Charles's approval rating went down politically. Now, after this movie, made by two men, just let's just be honest. It was, yeah. I mean, is Diana shown to be crazy now? So can you even use that word anymore? But that's the problem. Like the severity of uh, of the mental illness. Well, if you're seeing the ghosts of somebody and they're talking to you and telling, talking you out of committing suicide or hurting yourself, right, right, which is what happens in this movie, are you saying that actually happened? Because there is again the delineation between there's scenes earlier in the movie where she's supposedly ripping off the pearls, those famous pearls off her neck, and eating them, and that's clearly shown to be a fantasy or something in her head or something she wants to do or something she's driven to do but doesn't actually go through with. And that delineation between fantasy and reality is shown and it's stark and it, the contrast is there. That contrast disappears as the movie goes on, which to me can only suggest that Pablo Lorraine, 
again, me not knowing anything about this, and I'm going to ask you a question about where exactly this is and where I'm finishing with this sentence, but that suggests to me that Pablo Lorraine is trying to say that Princess Diana was being driven to actual literal madness. And I understand the parallels they're trying to make to Anne Boleyn the entire time, but I never thought, I was never under the impression that Princess Diana had her mental faculties in question at any point. My question to you, when exactly is this movie taking place? Have Like, what is going on within the royal family at this time? Clearly the marriage has dissolved, but does does the entire royal family know about Camilla and Charles's affair? Does the media yes. know at this point? Are they aware that this marriage is headed for divorce? Has Diana asked for divorce at this point yet? Where is this in time? I think the media had... Some of them might have known. I don't know what the gossip columnist knew back then. You probably had to live through that to know uh, where the media was. I think the media firestorm is about to happen. This is before, this is, believe it or not, this is the calm before the storm, right? I mean, she was always the most photographed woman on the planet. She was Mm -hmm. always, you know, in the trades. She was always someone who I think everybody at the crown and everybody in the Royal family was jealous of because of her celebrity. However, I don't think it was public knowledge yet that Charles always had the mistress Camilla. So this is Diana age 31 having been married since 21. So it's 10 years of the marriage and Darren, the chef, Sean Harris says, I wish, you know, everybody wants you to be that person from 10 years ago when they got married, when you started the fairy tale, everybody believed fairy tales exist. Right. And I've heard a lot of reviewers very smartly say that this is a story of rejecting your Prince charming, rejecting the Prince. And this is her dealing with the internalized, not the guilt, but the just the, the conflict of having to reject this life. She knows she's about to break from these people. And it's it, it literally is, is it's tearing her apart. And it's tearing her, her psyche apart. So in other dramatizations like The Crown, this is a crisis moment for her. And there's confrontations with the queen. There's not really confrontations with the queen here. Uh, at this particular I think Christmas. the queen is actually kind of sympathetic in the one line of dialogue she gets. Like, the queen right. is, to me, basically tells Diana, look, we you got to understand this is all bullshit, but this is what the country needs from us, so buckle up, sweetheart. And they're not going out on a limb with the queen there. I, I think the crown has criticized the queen much more than, obviously, the movie the queen did, Helen mm-hmm. Mirren. But the queen is, she's 95, how long? How much longer does she last? If you make a movie attacking the Queen of England right now, you're probably a jerk. Sure, you know, just to put it nicely. Yeah. So they're not. Uh, this is not about the. And queen. again, they're it's not, not her movie either. This not is not her movie. Yeah. So basically, this family always knew and rejected Camilla, the love of Charles's life, the current Queen Consort. She is married to Charles now. They always rejected her from the beginning. And it's just been the fatal flaw Achilles heel of this family from sisters and brothers to the queen herself. They reject the people they love and force them to marry elsewhere to keep the bloodline a certain way, to to keep things a certain way. It's a disaster every time. And this is a particular disaster where you have the heir and the spare. And after that, and Diana said it herself, after that the marriage was essentially over. So 
Diana and Charles had been cheating on one another at this point. And it, it, Diana took her a while to cheat on Charles, but she she did have an affair outside of her marriage. So they are basically at odds. They, they're done. They were at odds years before, and they're done at this point. And now it's gotten so bad that Diana wants out. So there's I mean, so she's much... ten years of bulimia. Sorry, Mike. She's ten years. I, I could I could I could do a whole well, documentary well, I, on myself. I, I just I, I have <laughs> a billion myself. questions, and, yeah. and maybe it's I hope I'm doing a service by other people who may not know all the information that you do going into this. But like, there seems to be in this movie so much of like a pity for Diana from everybody. Right. What if if the if it wasn't well, in the media yet that Charles was having an affair? Where is the pity coming from? Just the royal family treating her like shit? Yes, the royal family. So everyone just feels bad for her because she's openly being abused by this family? She's being abused by this family, and the family thinks it's self preservation. But when when they just got married, or before they got married, she was basically locked up. And this is what they did to Meghan Markle. Just late, lately, they right, did this. Right. They just, and that's why Harry's like, I'm not, they, this happened to my mother. Right, right. I'm getting the hell out of there. Mm-hmm. I'm getting her the hell out of here. I'm going to Tyler Perry's in, in the United States. Right. Christ, I'm not going to let them do what they did to my mother. I'm not going to let them do that to my wife. And that's at least, that's also mom's words coming through me right now. And I agree with her. That's, that's my interpretation of it. So they were brutal to diana controlling her and and this movie shows it in little ways like with the with the weight i mean weighing her and having that custom of the three pounds right, sure they were meddling and they all knew she was bulimic but they thought it was a character flaw they mm-hmm. didn't know it was a disorder and there's all kinds of levels of reporting on her self-harm some say she tried to commit suicide five particular particular times that's the sun Right, that's that's a major publication in Britain. I don't mm-hmm. know what the Sun is. Is it more tabloid? Who knows? I but always thought the there Sun are was, was akin to the Acquirer, but I could be completely off about that. I'm just throwing out there. Maybe maybe it is, yeah. but there are reports of different levels of self harm. Was she just a cutter once or twice, or was she just a depressed and deal and 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 striving forward through bulimia and th- what she talked about and admitted and through depression. But this movie portrays her as schizophrenic, and yes, look, if which you, is a huge issue. That's the thing. Like, is you can relate schizophrenia, depression, and bulimia together if you Wikipedia that, right? I mean, those those symptoms are commonly seen together, psych in a psychological fashion. So, are, are they going out on a limb? Is like she's telling people about the Anne Boleyn thing. I don't know. I mean, is that something that they found somewhere, written somewhere from a butler? Like, because everybody's butler. Like, all these service people were interviewed for years afterwards by every newspaper, etc. So these could be rumors that they're using to, you know, Stephen Knight is using as just something that spark a plot or spark an anecdote or whatever, a scene. Was, so that, like was the, that the main guy, the ex-military guy? Was he a real person? He was not technically a real person, uh, okay. according to historyversushollywood.com. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that that I looked up. So and I didn't know about him. Even though if you Wikipedia him, he is a British he's a real he is a real person, but he's only relevant twenty years later, this Alistair guy. He's it was involved with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, etc. So the pearl necklace soup is kind of the lightest example of a of a disturbing scene. I mean, this movie goes to where she's cutting herself and to where she may commit suicide where she may just jump off 
the stairs and she knows the stairs are broken. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a very severe crisis that she's in. And I do think the movie shows effectively how compassionate people can help other people through that crisis. It's not just her kids. It's Sally Hawkins' character. Yes. It's, uh, you know, that some of this, it's, it's the chef but Darren. Sean it also Harris. muddles the, the message too, because if she's actually, the difference between her being actually schizophrenic and not is the difference between this is the family. The Royal family is solely responsible for driving her to this versus she came in with her own, handicap mental handicap that's being preyed upon by these people i just in a very cursory you know understanding of schizophrenia it it's it can be it can be born it can be obviously inherited but it also can be worsened and sparked by stress and i mean can you imagine anybody under more stress than her at this sure point, right so it's not it's not uncommon that those symptoms are part and flower from depression is just my my layman's understanding of it so on the one hand it's possible and i don't know it's possible that lorraine's research and stephen knight's research there are admissions of this and maybe she told staff members that she saw Anne Boleyn. and maybe not i don't know but i do think she i mean there are enough rumors out there of self-harm of depression and there's enough out there that you're that, to dramatize it in a movie. I don't think is necessary. It's not liable. It's not a libelous offense. I no, it's think. not liable. But it, I think it does run the risk of painting Charles more sympathetically. Well, that's the worry, right? Because right, that, and that's uh, that's where I was going before. Thank you for bringing back. Like also, mom's biggest worry is like I think. Charles' approval rating is going to go up after this movie. Right. I mean, he's a cold fish, just like they all are. But he's also, he's not the cause of all her problems right. in this movie. And like that's what saying. I mean. Like, that's the difference. In? Yeah. And and that's and I think that's so dangerous to to not either make clear or at least expos- make expository and like, you know, give me something. If you're making a biopic. You can't yep. just have a title card at the beginning that says this is a fable and then say, hey, by the way, that princess that's still beloved to this day that everyone was obsessed with, uh, but she has schizophrenia now. I'll tell you this. That's what's holding me back from loving this movie more. Same here. That fact that I was like, you know, maybe if somebody who understood and who knew the truth of Diana's mental health issues... And she, we know she had them, but that's the thing. Like she's such an operator on a public scale, and I, and I say that in a good way and a bad way. Like and she, she was a master of, of playing master. the media too, playing the media, playing the situation, navigating the mm-hmm. minefields that the British royal family threw at her. Which so if you're if you if you are telling a true to life retelling of that, and I understand it's fable, it's a movie, it's not real, and all that, but this is again just as a viewer, as a critic, as a pundit like you, this is what's keeping me from wholly embracing this. Is that if you're giving this biopic retelling that's true to life, and you're not really, yeah, there's some fantasy elements to it, but you're not really being fantastical in any one way. You're pretty much just trying to tell the story of this woman and her mindset to drop this bomb on them from out of nowhere, or at least you don't even drop it. You, you, you don't even have, you're like, you're not even saying outright she has it. You're leaving it up to the audience's interpretation. I think that's a dangerous game. 
I, I do wonder the same thing because you're showing her at such a level of crisis that she'll run into a field while people are shooting at birds yeah. coming up from, obviously coming up from the fe- from the ground. You know that you could shoot a. And then she's in from- charge of children. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, like, it's and just, she it, gets it, along great with idealist idyllically with yes. her children, if for except for one scene where she goes and uses her son's toilet for some reason, and the son is obviously in distress right. i mean it's not I'll, I'll be honest with you there's enough scenes where william is clearly in distress over his mother and he understands like kids agree. get it agree he agree. the kid the kids I are much more perceptive yep. than we give them credit for and he gets it from the beginning and, and just like william did but they have a lot of fun together as well i i'll say this i think uh i think as a as a main theme and, and as a as a storyline that goes throughout, I'm constantly grappling with whether or not it's true, and I can't help but be in that space. Like I can't, this movie's problem is that it doesn't suspend my disbelief enough. Like it needed yes. to convince me more that this is a true story, and that I can believe them. And may, uh, maybe that's a baggage or not. It's, or not. It's not or a baggage have, issue. Or have it you, say. Or have yeah. it say this is the an artist's interpretation. And again, yeah. maybe they think they did enough by saying it's a fable of true events. Maybe they think they did. But I don't, I, you know, you and I are sharing this issue, and also Mom is sharing this issue. And, and Mom 1 had some similar, like, there's enough people that are watching this that are like, wait, what the hell is exactly, what are you trying to say? And I well, think that's, the that's, thing. What, I was, per- that's what I was yeah. alluding to the whole time. The, the meaning and the message gets muddled there. There's a line. The pearl necklace soup scene is one thing. Like, yes. all right, she has a vision of herself eating the pearl necklace and it's that's a metaphor of you know charles having you know the same gift for both his mm-hmm. mistress and his wife and the fact that it's a metaphor for their combustible relationship in, gen- in general i get it uh it's a it's a it, you know it, it works symbolically but then you have her seeing anne boleyn almost jumping down the stairs of a dilapidated condemned building that's that's you have her cutting herself with wire cutters. Did she really do it or not? We don't know. You like really she in the next there, scene, yeah. she doesn't. Yeah, I, this is serious, severe self harm potential and reality. We don't know what's real, what's fake there. Right, I, there, there's a line, and you, you you're forced to you're forced to grapple with it. And is it their place to put us in that headspace or not? I may maybe. Maybe he, Pablo Lorraine has been that level of provocateur throughout his career, and he has to do that. And, and those are the questions he feels are absolutely essential to ask here, because they're questions about Diana. We don't know. And it's a testament to him, nonetheless, the fact that we do walk away with these issues, but still respect the story and the movie. And what is there enough to say, wait, I mean, this is a fantastic watch. It is a hell of a watch. And I will say that, if you can get through the tension and the anxiety, uh, I think it's rewarding. So to skip ahead to the ending, Mike, I mean, all I need is a miracle by Mike and the Mechanics. That send-off to Diana in this movie makes a lot of the suffering worthwhile. Obviously, the song is a callback to Diana. I believe she's talking to her kid. Like, it'd be a miracle if we got away from having right. to be, you know, at this Christmas together. And like, Christmas be, I would own, love yeah. to get away. And she does that. And, and it is 
a testament to the, a lot of the interviews that William and Harry have given about their mother and saying that she kept things normal, quote unquote normal, as much as she could. She was a prankster. She was a fun mom. They played all the time. They went to KFC. They went to just normal drives and had time in the car singing music. And and and, and that cinched it for me, the KFC, where also mom and I were like, all right, we're going to food. We're getting food afterwards. <laughs> it wasn't the night. It, it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> chicken pot pie, by the way, is what I ordered. But yeah, oh, chicken good, pot beautiful. pie. I had to get some. It was, it was <laughs> good for you. Good for you. <laughs> All right. So that's that's ending. I, I wonder if the bright line of the ending was earned, though. And I, or where, where do you feel about the ending? Like, they made us suffer enough. Well, the, that's where, what I said in the non-spoiler section. I think this ending was included to not have it be so dreary and so questionable. And so, like, you have... Look, the her sense of calm and her center and her reality, her totem, you know, the Inception totem, if you will, to let her know she wasn't going crazy, was her kids the entire time. Right. So she takes William and Harry and she has this moment. And when it's just her being a mother to William and Harry, which is all she wants to be at this point anyway, based on how the movie has gone the entire time, that's when she's at her happiness. And that's, you know, that is her miracle. Her miracle is those kids and being able to be a mother to those children. Say the saving grace of the film, yeah, right. and, and not and and Sean Harris and Sally Hawkins, but those silly little gas station trinket gifts that she's able to give mm-hmm. her kids in that you know middle of the night scene, just wonderful, great scenes. All, all the scenes with her kids were terrific. I also thought some more best scenes involved Timothy Spall, this butler. That was psychological warfare. He put he clearly put obviously we're shown at the end he put the Anne Boleyn book by her bedside on purpose he was gonna can we, can you imagine the the audacity of a butler taking it upon himself to minister to someone at that level how could you even begin to comprehend what somebody is going through in a media frenzy like that you had no I don't care what wars you've fought in you can't know what she's going through yeah. under that microscope. And he thinks he knows everything, and, and and she sees through him from the jump, and her tell-off while he's walking away, oh, by the way, you don't put that shit near my bed, asshole. <laughs> and he's like, I don't know what you're talking about, but she knew. She 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 had him pegged there. And, and she, you know, this is a woman, I, I, I can understand the anxiety inducement, and, like, this is a woman who is stressed at every turn. I mean, she comes out and says one time, you know, if I say something out loud, it's not going to be true. And he's kind of the the eyes and ears of the royal family at that point, and he's the one who obviously re- gets all the reports back from everyone else. And it is, it's just, it is great psychological warfare. But you do understand why Diana would like be. They really did have her boxed in at every turn. I mean, the woman couldn't right. even get a midnight snack without being bothered. Correct. And but the contrast of that was Sean Harris and Sally Hawkins, and yes. Sean Harris in particular. The the meetings they had together, where he he basically said, you know what. They're cracking jokes about everybody else. With you, they're generally concerned. And if and Sally Hawkins said said that probably. He said you were cracking up, but he she said it like she was in crisis. And we yeah. we realized later. I mean, I thought that scene was very important. And it's also it's also something authentic to Kristen Stewart and her. I'm I'm, sh- I'm sure that scene mattered to Kristen Stewart quite a bit to have a, a, a lesbian character in this film be the one to remind us show love all of us were in love with diana during that time even when i was 12 years old i remember princess diana being my god every the all of great britain they were in love with her with her celebrity but with that person with that uh ideal 
and everybody was she was she was the people's princess literally everybody's wildest dream and to have that reminder there in this movie seeing this you know basically this character in a psychological horror film right go yeah. through it to remind us that oh, no this is <laughs> this is the nightmare of celebrity literally and it was such so, a like it's a dichotomy too because you see right. her she's surrounded by family the entire movie who's supposed to love her i mean the message of that you you can truly pick your family too at the end of the day blood doesn't mean anything as much as love does i mean she's surrounded by family that supposed supposedly loves her and they're manipulating her and see her as nothing but a pawn and telling her to suck right. it up essentially and then she's surrounded by someone who actually does truly love her and not even on just like a sexual level but just as, as a person respect has genuine respect and care for her on a personal basis and you see her lighten up and the light return to her eyes and she's frolicking on the beach and stuff and it's, it really is a it's it's a smacks you in the face that was one of like four or five scenes that went to 11. And I, whereas I don't know if the, the one jumping out in her, in the jacket in front of the, the shotguns worked for me. That was kind of a, a worse Agree. scene. Yep. And I don't know if seeing Anne Boleyn at the, you know, the cycle, but I, I, I'm shook by the scene in the dilapidated, you know, house from her childhood. What, what the hell? So she happened to grow up she in had, a house in that reality, was right next to where the Royal family has their holiday. In reality, she was there for like a year. So she had some happy memories when she was like 13 or 14. I, I read that again. This is from the one article, History versus Hollywood. I, I don't, I'm not an expert on British geography and English. Like, geography. even that, I could have used a little more expo- You know, give me some ex- exposition. She just, this woman just happened to grow up right next to the royal family and then she's a princess? I don't understand. Well, that. that's, but they're all these incestual circles. They're mm-hmm. all, I mean, she's Mal, uh, or Mal Batten tried to get Charles to marry his great granddaughter or granddaughter and and then who's is who's cousin like Malbatten's Malbatten's nephew was Prince Philip just stop having Elizabeth. sex with your bloodline how about that how about don't have sex with your bloodline and if you do maybe we don't celebrate them as a royalty maybe anyway. we don't celebrate <laughs> them but I, I I will say a couple more best like the food number one just I, I could do it did a look whole podcast right. on it the did look right. if I if you had access to that fridge that walk-in fridge that Diana's in when she's confronted by the uh, the guard there and they have their first tete-a-tete I mean I'd be like Winnie the Pooh trying to get out of there <laughs> just like can't do it I'd just be stuck in there uh until time passed but though I mean like th- those scenes with the food just tremendous I mentioned the pool table scene like the Charles scenes great but that surreal dance montage almost made me cry and I and I know that's the most stylistic moment of the film if not the at the beach but I like though like the big swings some of the big swings swings I would say like three out of the five really worked on me so, were you worried at all that that was going to veer into uh just endless spins like the no what was that netflix movie what was the netflix movie <laughs> the weird one last year that we did with andrew with jesse well, plemons looking out the window i'm thinking of ending things yes <laughs> well, you i don't have... that was gonna veer into that territory at the end with that I montage no no i wasn't worried about that because okay. i kind of well, that makes story here. Then. <laughs> a couple more worse scenes and i think they're it's important to mention like I'm going to have nightmares about being late to things now. And maybe that's <laughs> how effective this movie is. Maybe it's not a worse scene. Maybe it's bad, but I, you remember all those nightmares you had like 10 years out of, you got out of school. You still have nightmares about being late to things in school or, Oh my God, I didn't study or, Oh my I God, I'm naked. Still or, have those nightmares. Yes. 
We all do. We yep. all do. And this is this whole movie is like one of those, I would say. I mean, she couldn't even go to the bathroom without somebody hovering over her. You know? Well, that my mom's mentioned something that, you know, the Royals, like if you took a crap, <laughs> you would have like a minute later, someone would be in there cleaning the whole bathroom. Like that's how intrusive some of this Christ life Almighty. really was. Can you imagine Why are that? people obsessed with this family? <laughs> uh, uh, the mountain of photographers was a little much for me. That scene, I really did not like that. I, I know well, that's, that. I, I don't mean to keep interrupting you, but like that's you're bringing up a lot yeah. of stuff that I like. So that's what I thought was like. Oh, so the media knows that these two are having affair, or like Charles cheated on her already, because that's why there's a billion photographers when they're just trying to go to church, and that's why they're the, spying on her through the window when she's when her drapes are open. The story was starting to get out. I think I can't remember. At that and from the documentaries again, people who lived through it will know like where the gossip was at that point. But that's the thing, like a lot of the, or I, I don't know, some of the, uh, what do you call those newspapers that print the gossip? Tabloids. Tabloids. Some of the tabloids were being proven right years later, mm. right? Like I'm sure Camilla was in the <laughs> whatever. But I think uh, that mountain of photographers. Obviously, I get it. It's supposed to be like a. It's showing us how uh, just a glimpse of how over photographed she was and how right. the media was going to be a frenzy upon her for the next five years, obviously, once this story really jacked up. But there were like in the documentary, there were there was a trip, a vacation where she actually let herself be sad in front of the photographers where she didn't put on a brave face where it's clear. And she mm. was like crying. It's clear. And her face looked like she'd been crying for days. And uh, I mean, she, I'm sure she had moments throughout her career, but uh, definitely there was one that, that that all the documentaries seem to point to. I don't know if it was this particular weekend. It definitely wasn't that particular outfit, which kind of bothered me. So anyway, kind of a worse scene, a bit surreal. I don't know if it was real or not. Finally, Mike, the, the word Spencer, the last name Spencer, I mean, it wasn't necessarily Superman 4, Quest for Peace level <laughs> title in the scene to give us the moment. Because I'm a family moral. guy. <laughs> But Jesus Christ, yeah. twice that the, when the she mentioned Spencer <laughs> at the drive. Oh, come on. But there is humor to that. If like there was a dramatic buildup and there's this tight shot closing up on her face and she's like, what's your name? Spencer. And then the camera widens out and she's literally at a drive through of a KFC. <laughs> like, <laughs> eh, maybe, maybe it was funny. I didn't get that joke. Nah. I mean, there was some jokes. I, I, we didn't even talk about. It. There were some jokes in the beginning of the movie, like she's just popping into a random spot, lost on the road. Anyway, th- th- this movie is like weirdly funny to British audiences. I was reading today, uh, Lorraine was being interviewed. It's like I can't, I can't believe how many jokes get through to British audiences where Americans are silent about it. And, <laughs> You know, because we don't get it or we don't. Yeah, but I, I remember laughing a little bit early in this movie. Obviously, once the psychological horror plotline yeah, comes up. Tough to laughing. laugh when you. <laughs> I mean, maybe uh-huh. the British are more macabre in their humor than we are, than even maybe we are. Maybe they are. Yeah. Maybe they are. Anyway, that's a wild first impression extravaganza from us about Spencer here, Mike. So where do you land? What's the grade? What's the final grade? First reaction. I mean, highs are high. First reaction is that it's it's a good grade for me. It's a B plus eighty eight, B plus eighty nine. Yeah, I probably talk down to the eighty eight more than I talk up to the eighty nine, but it it still achieves highs that are are worth seeing. And again, that perform like you have to add points for that, right? I mean, the performance being so good, I think so. And the, 
And this movie is on another level, in my opinion, than some bad movies with great performances that have been nominated. Agree so with I think that this as well. is next level there. Yeah, I agree with everything you're saying. I think we have a true-to-life uh, three-point curve, as usual, because I was an 86 coming into this. May have talked myself down to an 85, but it's a strong B for me all day. I mean, you're it's something I do want to see again, like you. I, I have... I just want to study what Pablo Lorraine was trying to say about Princess Diana in those scenes. Because yeah, it just, it, it really came off muddled to me. And I think that's keeping me from really, really liking this movie. I, I agree. Like, I want to do more. I wish we had more time for the film study on this one. Yeah. Or maybe we just need to teach a college class or go to a college class or, or just talk to a British person. <laughs> maybe that's what we should have done. Any of those would be. <laughs> We did any of those things. Uh, as always, dear listener, we want to hear from you. Did you take in Spencer? What did you think of it? What is your grade? Do you have input as to what you think Pablo Lorraine was trying to say? Do you think Mike and I are way off here? Uh, let us know. You can leave us all of that as well as any other comments, questions, or concerns you have about anything we do here in the MMO Empire. As always, on our social medias, we are at Mike, Mike, and Oscar on both Facebook and Instagram, at MM and Oscar on the Twitter machine, and go check out my pics and videos from the amc southington series uh, theater if you want to see i uh, have those up on the social medias as well uh mike mike and oscar at gmail.com.com and on reddit we are available wherever you hear podcasts including and especially the apple podcast app and if you're listening to us on that app today if you'd be so kind if you appreciate what we do to leave us a five-star review those truly help us out a lot thank you to all of you who have done so thus far michael uh what is coming next from us and what are some words of wisdom in a british accent to end on <laughs> uh, maybe Oscar race checkpoints are coming I think we're going to do one that's also going to have a movie review segment in it uh, Eternals is something we want to weigh in on this uh, after this weekend that is uh, otherwise we got Oscar profile movie review episodes and they're going to come mm-hmm. basically weekly at this point Belfast, uh, King Richard, House of Gucci Licorice Pizza, The Power of the Dog I mean those are all must profile episodes that we're going to do uh we have to do them and uh we i I look forward to to seeing all those movies and doing kind of the film study or the first impression extravaganza with you and perhaps some guests going forward mike uh words of wisdom in an episode like this if you're going to order nachos (laughs) i need nacho cheese is it a nacho without nacho cheese Crikey. No, that's Australian. <laughs> that's the crocodile hunter. That's a, a crikey. Oh, how, where did my brain go? I'm glad we didn't do any accents this entire episode. Wow. It just it completely undercut the entire... Like, you put me up like, oh, he watched all this TV and movies. He's an authority. Mm-hmm. And nope, mm-hmm. I said an Australian <sighs> exclamation. All I did was watch Crocodile Dundee the movie. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a knife. <laughs> oh, guys, as always, when reality sucks, you can come slap on the fake accents with us, I guess. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season year round without the stuffiness. We'll see you all very soon. We fall apart at the end of every episode, don't we? <laughs> we'll see you. <ya. laughs>